Hello, this is Anthony Day with the latest Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 18th of November. This episode is mainly devoted to an interview with author Amanda Scott. But before we go into that, here's a couple of items of news. You'll remember that there's a group of American children alleging in court that the federal government is violating their constitutional and public trust rights by promoting the use of fossil fuels. The government and the fossil fuel industry urged the court to dismiss the case, but the judge refused, so the appeal went to the next level. Last Thursday, District Court Judge Anne Aiken rejected all arguments to dismiss raised by the federal government and fossil fuel industry, determining that the young plaintiff's constitutional and public trust claims could proceed. Dr James Hansen said, This is a critical step towards solution of the climate problem and none too soon as climate change is accelerating. Like the recent ruling on Article 50 and Brexit by the High Court in London, this is a legal decision, not a political decision. Therefore, in spite of President-elect Trump's denialism, there's probably not a lot he can do about it. Nonetheless, Trump has appointed a prominent climate sceptic, Myron Ebel, to lead his transition team at the Environment Protection Agency. Ebel, who leads the Centre for Energy and Environment at the right-leaning Competitive Enterprise Institute, has warned against climate alarmism and called the agency's Clean Power Plan, issued in August 2015, illegal. Oilman Harold Hamm, CEO of Continental Resources, has been named as a potential candidate to lead the Department of Energy. We can only stand and watch. And so to the interview. This was recorded on the 4th of November before the result of the American presidential election was known. Amanda Scott studied to be a vet, has become a successful historical novelist, and is now taking time out to study economics for the transition. In a wide-ranging interview, we spoke about compulsory voting, where the money comes from, better selection of lawmakers, reframing ideas, the end of TINA and GDP growth, political tribalism, regenerative farming, subsidising fossil fuels, the sixth mass extinction, climate change denial and supply chains. Here it is. Oh, and after the main interview, she gave me a sneak preview of what her next book will be about. Now, my first question is, you um, you trained to be a vet. I did. You did. And since then, you've become uh, a historic novelist. How many novels have you published now? Published? I lose count. I think 14. I think I just handed in the draft to number 15. So you've gone from, as we said, being a vet to being an author and now you're studying for an MA in economics for transition at the Schumacher College. I am this is my sabbatical. Yeah. Right but what made you choose this for your sabbatical? Uh, Well the very short answer is um, that my spiritual practice is shamanic and when you ask the gods what do you need of me and they say go there my absolute experience is that deciding not to bother is a very bad idea. Uh, the slightly longer and more head-mindy answer is that it has become apparent that writing novels is not going to change the world the way I thought that it was, mm-hmm. and I need to do something more than that. 
I became very politically active when Jeremy Corbyn was first elected as leader of the Labour Party right. and began to realise the extent to which we were being lied to about the economy. And then began to realise that being able to say this is not true was not enough. I needed to be able to articulate why it wasn't true and also to have a really coherent concept of what else might work. Um, and so discovering that the MA in for transition, so it's for transition to a zero carbon economy at Schumacher is the only one in the world. Um, and there was space for one more person. So, right. I so this is economics for transition to a low carbon economy. So that's the yes. link then with sustainability. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's the only course of its nature in the world. That I could find, yes. I don't think there's anybody else doing economics specifically for transition to low carbon. Yes. So there's a big, uh, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go. But we have, I think, of 17 of us, five are from Britain and the rest are from around the world. So really? it, it's it's got good penetration. I think we've got six from Brazil, uh, one from Sweden, one from Germany, one from Holland, a pair from Israel, um, someone from Zimbabwe. There's there's a lot of people interested and, oh. and they can each speak to sustainability growing in their own countries and their own areas and their own regions. Right. And what sort of backgrounds do they come from? Are, are they um, independents? Are they being sent by governments or organisations? They're all independent. They're all, all self-funding. Self um, but they are quite, some of the Brazilians particularly are quite embedded in efforts in their own country to affect change, but are also despairing of the political system there. I mean, it seems that all around the world we're electing people like Trump. It's just that Trump is the one that is most visible to us. Um, but they are they're having uh, somebody kind of had a crisis in class the other day because they just read on Facebook that their president had just committed to not increasing funding for health or education for the next 20 years. This is the new president who's just replaced the yeah. president who's been impeached. Yes, exactly. The president who was the president who was impeached, who was actually doing good stuff. Yeah. Yes. 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 And it's economically illiterate. That's the thing. It's this idea that governments take in taxes and then spend them and you can't spend more than you have taken in is is so utterly untrue and is so lodged in the public mindset and finding ways to frame it finding a way to create a narrative that says please understand how money arises where it comes from what governments can and cannot do on our behalf is is so central i think to changing the way that we live and to creating a sustainable, a genuinely sustainable future, um, that it seems really worthwhile to actually get it so that I can be coherent about it. Right. So we're we talking about going back to Keynes and deficit budgeting in order to stimulate the economy. Well, we're talking we're talking really about going back to what is an economy for? Why are we so fixated on growing? Um, why when jobs are in decline when Oxford and MIT both independently reckon that within 10 years there will only be 50% employment at best. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just the jobs that nobody wants. You know, it, It's not going to be long before surgeons are obsolete and accountants and probably lawyers. You're talking about artificial intelligence. Yeah, we're talking about the algorithms can do it better in almost every circumstance except human creativity where we appreciate human creativity or sport. You know, it's, it's going to be a while before it's worth watching an Olympics that's entirely bionic. Um, but but the rest of the time, you know, the jobs won't be there. Why, why are we aiming for the kind of disaster that GDP growth inflicts on us? 
why do we have a mindset that says governments take in tax and then they spend them when the reality is, is governments spend money into existence and then take it back as tax in order, generally speaking, to avoid inflation and to balance and create more equity. And because they don't understand this, they've not been doing it. The Positive Money did a survey when the 2010 cohort came into government and they discovered that one in 10 of the new MPs understood where money came from. One in 10 of the people who are making the decisions about how to spend this money understands money creation, yes. which is terrifying, frankly. Yes. Why, are we, why are we electing people who are completely clueless? Um, so I'm also looking at blockchain technology and, and how it might change governance and politics and things like that, which is what you get when you've got six months to just freewheel and, right. and so find blockchain out. is the technology behind Bitcoin, am I right? Yes, yes. But I think it was, we need to get hold of the concept that Bitcoin is the mobile phone the size of a brick that only sends, only takes phone calls in, in that technology. And right. that there's blockchain use and blockchain concepts that are moving you know, forward to iPhone 7. Bitcoin is big and clunky and has is of limited functionality. But we're talking but about that technology, yes. A digital has huge currency. scope. Yeah. And we're not just talking about digital currency, we're talking about a digital way of labeling everything in a way that is not forgeable, lasts forever and is absolutely unique. And that will change a lot of things. Right. Well, so for instance, um we could vote using blockchain and nobody would ever be able, it would be accessible to everybody forever. It would be verifiable instantaneously and, and it would have 100% trust, which given the nature of the American voting system, for instance, might be a really interesting innovation. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily trust the way electronic voting happens at the moment because the software is the software. Yes. And, and what it shows you up front is not necessarily what's happening underneath. Um, but with blockchain, we could have 100% verifiable voting. And if we're going to have 100% verifiable voting and we were able to go, you know, you want to join in with society, then actually we need everybody to vote. We need compulsory voting. We have to give you the option of going, I don't like any of the options you've given me. None of the above has to be an option if you have compulsory voting. But I think we could have compulsory voting and we could have much greater input and we could stop electing people who are completely clueless. We could say, for instance, I decide that this group of 10 people knows a lot more about the NHS than I do. They understand health. I trust them, this particular group, to use my vote. I give them my vote to vote on health. This other group understand about regenerative farming, for instance, which is another key interest at the moment. Yeah. Um, the idea that with farming, we can actually reduce CO2. We can have negative CO2 farming. I trust that lot to understand about farming. I give them my vote for that. We, you know, because voting has been done by tally sticks or you know black pebbles since voting began, doesn't yeah. mean it has to be done that way in the era of blockchain technology. We could we could change a lot of stuff, and we could change who makes money because at the moment banks make money, and they make it out of nothing and they sell it to assess as profit. Yes. And I think if we could change, democratize the creation of money, we could change a lot of things. Well, this sounds as though economics of transition is a very, very broad field. Yes, it is. Where are yes, you going to take it when you? And how long is this going to be? Is this a year's course or is it more yes. than that? Yeah. It's six months taught, and then we have so we finish the taught course in April, and then we have until the end of August to do a dissertation. 
Right. Um, so this so, time next year, where will you be taking your MA in uh, economics? I'm okay. So if I were able to dream up my dream job, I would be in a left-wing think tank thinking how to reframe our concepts of the economy mm. for um, a future left-wing government, because we we need to reframe it. I've been reading an awful lot about how framing works, about how language frames our ideas. And the right has very successfully managed to frame our ideas along the, what we call TINA economics, which is there is no alternative. Yes. Austerity is necessary because, you know, there is no more money because we gave it all to the bankers so they could continue to pay themselves extraordinary bonuses and therefore there is nothing left. Uh, except that we have managed to create 675 billion out of nothing to continue to give the banks money because they do need to pay themselves extraordinary bonuses. Mm. Um, and that narrative is everywhere. You know, nobody questions it. Nobody questions GDP growth as being the thing that we need to go for. Growth is everything. If a country's GDP is not growing, then that country is considered to be failing. Um, and ours isn't growing and, and hasn't actually been growing in any way that is relevant for a long time. If you decide that measuring prostitution and, and drug sales is a useful way of measuring GDP, then yes, it is growing. But actually, there are a lot of other metrics that we could be using for human well-being that are not tied to, is our GDP growing? Right. Um, okay. So I want okay. to change the narrative around that. I want to change the narrative around the whole way that we make and use money. Um, right. that, would be, that would be my absolute key. Okay, well, oh, okay. you want to change the world. But, yeah, I do, definitely. let's suppose we start with the, the, the UK. I mean, in practical terms... What hope is there of changing the political status quo? I mean, particularly given that there are, we've got first past the post system of elections, which um, can, I believe can, can, can be biased. Of course. Uh, we are and they're the going brink. to change the, the, the constituency size, yes. Yeah. Um, they are talking about the possibility of uh, a snap election because yeah. the government had this reversed, didn't it, in the courts? Yes. Uh, it was told that the Prime Minister couldn't decide on, on Brexit on her own. It would have to yeah. be voted on by Parliament. And the speculation is now that there will be an early general election. If there is an early yeah. general election, I think you'd agree there's no chance whatsoever of the Labour Party winning it. Um, and in fact, it's very likely that the Conservative Party will come in with a very substantial majority. And that will allow them to go on for a further five years. How, do we, how do we cope with this? I don't know. I'm also working with people who are working very hard on the progressive alliance concept because the Tory vote is the Tory vote, but the vote for the left, if we were able to bring it together and stop the insane tribalism, in a lot of cases is greater than the vote for the right. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't give up totally on that, but I think the tribalism is the tribalism. I, I, I think tribalism is insane, frankly. Um, but I do encounter a lot of it. So, um, on, and not just Labour, you know, Labour, Lib Dems, the people who are interested in a progressive alliance are the Greens, but you say that and everybody goes, well, they would be, wouldn't they? And yes, they would be, wouldn't they? But they're also, on the whole, much less tribal and much more scared about where we're going and what we're doing. Um, so I don't know is the answer to that. I think the progressive alliance could help, but I suspect that people won't be desperate enough this side of the next general election. Yeah. I think people yeah. will spin themselves the idea that, um, I don't know, there's going to be a Lib Dem resurgence or that somehow Labour will manage to change the media narrative. I think one of the things that interests me most is that if you present Labour policies to people, 
they like them. And then you tell them they're labor and they don't. But what most people who think that labor is unelectable are not people who don't want them to be elected. They're people who believe the narrative that the Labour Party as current is unelectable. There's an interesting, again, we're back to frames, thing that happens where people believe that everybody else believes something and therefore they have to believe it. If we can shift the frame, I'm not sure that the majority of people in this country want where the Tories are taking us. But we have to shift the frame and we have to change the narrative. Which is why podcasts matter, you know? Okay, good. <laughs> but look, time is short. Yes, uh, we're talking sorry. about a five-year parliamentary cycle. Um, we haven't really got five years. If we you, um, This week, Lord Stern has said that if we are to meet the um, two-degree target, you know, keeping um, global warming within two degrees, we are actually going to have not just to cut emissions, but to physically draw... CO2 okay. and greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Now, nobody's even thinking about that. Well, they are, but no, yes, nobody in government nobody is. Nobody in government. Okay, so I have a grand plan. Again, yes. regenerative farming. I, I'm working on a paper as we speak um, to look at what would happen if we were able to take the industrial farming of Britain and, and really push for regenerative farming. And again, that would take political change. But the thing about that... What do you mean by regenerative farming? So regenerative farming are techniques that I've not yet fully got my head around, so I can't speak about them with huge authority, but I have read the papers by people who have studied it. Mm. It is possible to farm in a way that maintains productive output and doesn't cross planetary boundaries. Are you familiar with um, the concept of planetary boundaries? Um... Not, un- not under okay. that name. I, no. I would need to find you the paper. I can't remember okay. off the top of my head the name. But there's there are nine planetary boundaries, and any one of them could lead to a tipping point, and CO2 in the atmosphere is one. Okay. And is one that we've crossed. One of the others is nitrates and phosphates. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so and acidification of the oceans. These are all these three are all linked. Yeah. Industrial farming, the basically which is basically strip mining of the soil as we practice this at the moment, dumps nitrates and phosphates onto it, onto the soil, massively reduces soil quality and is a huge emitter of CO2. It is possible to farm in a way that doesn't do that and without massively reducing output. You get more produce per acre or per hectare with regenerative farming, but it costs more. You get more produce per dollar with industrial farming because um, fossil fuels have got such a massive subsidy. Last IMF report that I read, this government was subsidising the fossil fuel companies to the tune of £1,000 per household per annum, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of unfortunate, I think, Um, and also entirely unnecessary. If they weren't doing that, industrial farming would not be in any way financially viable. We've got a bit of a window. Are you talking about organic farming as as an alternative? Yeah, well, it's not just organic. Regenerative farming is, is more than purely organic. I I would have to send you details. I'm not up to speed on it yet. I've only just begun to look at it. Um, You use, it's using no plough techniques, no dig techniques. It's using um, rotations of farm animals, so it's not vegetarian, um, and using them in a way that creates soil regeneration. As soil regenerates, it draws in carbon. So it's, it's much more labour intensive, but I spent the last couple of weeks going out to look at people who are beginning to do community supported agriculture. 
average age of farmers in this country is is somewhere in the high 70s. Really? Um, yeah. And around here, where I am in Shropshire, we, we had, we got a little cottage, we had our hedges laid in the spring. The guys were meant to come back in September to trim them, and they didn't turn up. And we phoned and we phoned, and finally they turned up this week. And the reason they hadn't been is that their job when they are not laying hedges is preparing farms for sale. And every day since March when they laid our hedge, they have been preparing farms for sale in our area. And they're going to people who industrially farm. It's it's astonishing. They're mostly going to people who don't even live in Britain. So I have a plan which says we need to set up a fund. We need to bring in farmland into a commons hold. So it's held for Britain by Britain. And we begin regenerative farming on that land. And we need to set up a regenerative farming school because it's not how farmers are taught. Farmers are doing the best they can, but they're taught industrial farming is what to do. We absolutely need to change that. And I think that there is a window because CAP is going to go. Whatever happens with Brexit, CAP's gone. And CAP massively supports... Yes, Common Agricultural Policy. Massively supports industrial farming. I think if we were to offer a viable alternative and a way of bringing people back to the land who want to be farming the land in a much more labour-intensive way, but it's organic and it wouldn't be crossing the nitrate phosphate boundary and it would be drawing in CO2, then I think that would be a worthwhile thing to start. And it's a way of helping to change the narrative. I think a lot of the reason, if you read George Marshall's book, I don't even talk about it. He talks about why is it that we're all in denial about the level of climate change and what can be done about it. And part of the reason we're all in denial is that we have our own internal narrative that tells us there is nothing that we can do and therefore there's no point. I think if we were able to create a narrative that goes, look, guys, there are things we can do. And it's not going to mean that we end up living in a cave somewhere. Then then it's worthwhile. So part of what we're doing at the college is um, helping to reframe narratives so that people have an idea that the future in a sustainable way is not going to mean that we have to change our lifestyles to the point where we don't recognize ourselves anymore. It's called Don't Even Think About It. It's really interesting. Yes, so it looks yes. at the psychology of why um, why do we not talk about it? Why, why, do our, why do we elect people who actively tell us that climate change isn't happening when every single piece of scientific evidence says that it is? Yes. And, yes. and the answer is because we like being in denial, because it's easier, because it's safer, and because we're afraid. Okay. And we need to give people the ability not to be afraid. Yes, yes. Well, a lot of people will be listening to this, and um, some of them will agree, some of them will disagree. But those who agree will probably say, well, but what can I do? And as I said, I think time is short. Mm. So if somebody came to you and said, well, what one thing should I be doing now? What would you say to them? Do a carbon budget on your entire life. Look at your life, and there are tools online. Um, I expect together we can find them. So a carbon what, budget then looking at the emissions created by the yes. different activities in, in their yes. life. Yes. Look at how you can change your own life. And then I think the single most important thing you can do is talk to people. Because when you've looked at your own carbon budget and worked out how you can minimise your own emissions to the best that you can within your own moral framework without getting to the point where you hate your life, then you need to talk to the people around you. We will only change the national conversation if every single one of us talks to the people we meet on the street, to the people that we stand next to in the queue in the supermarket, to 
our mad old uncle who reads the Telegraph and is in total denial. And we have to find the language. Each of us has to find the language that says, I understand that you don't want to know this and I'm not trying to threaten you, but we don't have much time left. There are things that we all care about. We are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. Ocean acidification is happening. You know, lots of the other boundaries. If you want to be in denial about global warming, then that's fine. But there are eight other boundaries that we're crossing. And there are things that we can do. By organic, if it's humanly possible, by local. It's really important that we start looking at the supply chains of what we use and what we buy, not just for our food, for our clothes, for everything that we have in the modern day. Look at the supply chain, work out where it's coming from. Insofar as it is humanly possible, commit to not buying things that have crossed half the world. You know, why do we buy fish that has been caught off you know, our own coasts, sent to China to be deboned and brought back again? You know, we just have to start looking at the insanity of what fossil fuels have done and unpick them in our own neighborhoods and then talk to people. Become politically active. Become an activist in whatever way works for you, because that's the only way we're going to change people. Well, thank you very much indeed. Amanda Scott, thank you for uh, a very interesting summary of what you're doing. I think I'd like to talk to you in perhaps six months when you're approaching the to. end of the course and we'll see how things have developed and uh, we've built on those thoughts. So uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. A lot to think about there. Before I go, if you're interested in Manda's next book, listen on. What's number 15 called? Accidental Gods, currently, but um, we do have a tendency for my working title never to be the final title. I'm hoping this one sticks. Right, yeah. and which series is that part of? This is a, a sort of sequel to Into the Fire. So Into the Fire is a dual timeline, modern-day contemporary thriller, and historical thriller, because based around, I think I know who Joan of Arc really was. In fact, I'm sure I do. And the man who discovered her skeleton was thrown out of France. And so we decided that there was a historical thriller that was really interesting of somebody in the past trying to work out who she was. But there's also the body found in a fire in the present day, because the present day reaction to somebody going, I know who she is, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um and so the sequel to that is the same contemporary characters, a police chief in a woman police chief in Orléans and her team. But the historical narrative is in the Second World War, because um, I really wanted to look at how the Jedburghs and the SOE, the really the people who were absolutely the good guys in World War Two, definitely incredibly heroic, very well trained, very decent people became the CIA, GCHQ and NSA that we've got today. Um, and I discovered that uh, there's a man called Klaus Barbie, who was the Gestapo chief in Lille. Indeed, yes. Um, come 45, when the French went to get him, uh, he wasn't there because MI6 had got him out because we were running him from 44 onwards. And then we sold him to the CIA when the CIA set up in 57. And they got him out again from Germany, where we'd hidden him when the French were getting close, got him to Uruguay, where he set up torture chambers doing exactly what he'd been doing in Lyon until he reached his 80s when he really wasn't much use to anybody and they finally handed him back to the French. But I thought that there was a, a really key moment when somebody's, or there was a collective flip of the moral compass when we, we collectively, we the powers that be, decided that it was okay to run Klaus Barbie and get him out.
Um, and I just wanted to look at how that arose and what the implications were today. So we've got a, ser a kind of intertwined series of, uh, of a th two thrillers that run together with a question. And, and that's the answer. Something to look forward to. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Futures Report. I'll be back next week and we'll probably be talking more about what Donald Trump intends to do, about HS2 and what happened in Marrakesh. In the meantime, have a really good week. Send me your thoughts, if you like, to mail at anthony-day.com and we'll be in touch again soon. Bye for now.